and welcome to episode 40 of the Strength Ratio Podcast. I'm Zachary Greenwald, joined as always by my host Kyle Klachenko. And today we have a very special guest on. He's a guest who you may not be familiar with, but many uh, who are in the bodybuilding uh, populations and powerlifting populations are very familiar with him. Uh, we welcome Eric Helms to the podcast. Uh, this is uh, a guest that we've been so excited to have on, especially due to how Eric's uh, knowledge and ability to communicate with others in the field openly uh, has allowed us to kind of be a fly on the wall uh, in learning and applying uh, programming concepts almost immediately. Um, we've heard Eric uh, speak on a roundtable with others who've been on the podcast, such as Dr. Mike Isratel, and it's been great to hear uh, Eric's openness and his ability to influence others in the field and communicate certain concepts very clearly and uh, um, just clearly and, and I think very uh, soundly without any biases or judgment. Uh, Eric, you have a way of talking that's kind of just very calming. Uh, you don't really get too ramped up. You just kind of say it how it is and it just seems to make sense. So welcome. Well, thank you very much. My name is Eric Helms. I'm so glad to be on the podcast. No, but seriously, that's 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 really really kind, and I'm I'm glad to hear that. I um, it's an honor to be on here. Thank you, Zach. Good to meet you guys. Uh, thanks, Kyle. And um, yeah, I'm I'm excited to to chat to you guys. And it's always good to to get to discuss things to an audience who may not be too familiar with you, so you're not just preaching to the choir. So, if you want to tell the audience first, Eric, a little bit more about. 3DMJ and perhaps your own personal education. That would be Absolutely. a great place. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm really just a, a dude who likes to lift heavy stuff and is trying to get jacked um, and uh, trying to do it drug free. Um, and that's something that uh, I share the passion with for, uh, with the rest of 3D muscle journey. So that's a collective of myself and uh, three other coaches and also our operations manager, Andrea Valdez. So that's me, uh, Alberto Nunez, Jeff Alberts, Brad Loomis, and Andrea. And uh, we've been doing our thing since, man, late 2009. And we started out as really just trying to provide kind of a uh, community and um, a place of appreciation for other natural athletes. We kind of started as like a quote-unquote online magazine. And uh, we very much uh, enjoyed doing that, but we also to kind of keep funding it, we decided to start doing coaching, online coaching. And uh, that blew up eventually and kind of took over our entire focus. And it's only been in the last, I'd say, three years since we brought Andrea on where we were able to retain that, uh, that focus on providing that online community and support and uh, giving a lot of evidence-based information and also just experiential uh, information, uh, to, to the athletes in the community. And I'm kind of the science arm of 3DMJ. So I'm the, the, the guy out of the, uh, the five of us who pursued his education all the way to, uh, a PhD, uh, which I just finished last year at Auckland university of technology here in New Zealand. So since 2005, I've been a personal trainer. I did that in person till about 2011, I think was when I had my very last couple in-person clients before I moved to New Zealand. Um, finished my bachelor's degree in 2011 um, in fitness and wellness with a bigger focus in sports management. Um, 
first master's I finished in 2012. Uh, and then I did my first research-based uh, degrees here in, in New Zealand. Uh, so finished my master's of philosophy in 2013, focusing on macronutrient and protein manipulation in uh, bodybuilders. And then recently, having just finished my PhD, I was looking at uh, auto-regulation strategies in powerlifters. So if you guys are familiar with Mike T, it's kind of like his system that I, uh, I, I did some investigations of. So yeah, I'm currently a research fellow at AUT. Uh, so I'm a, an active researcher. I supervise masters and PhD students as well. Uh, I'm a competitive uh, natural bodybuilder, powerlifter. I have dabbled a little bit in weightlifting, but I wouldn't feel comfortable taking the mantle weightlifter. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just do what I can to try to share information and help people. Awesome. So uh, definitely coming at it with a wealth of knowledge and experience. And today we're going to be focusing on a specific topic, excuse me, but I think it'll in and of itself reveal many other layers of, of just sound training principles. And that is the progression uh, respective to hypertrophy, strength, and power within a microcycle. So microcycles typically last a week of a training block, not always, but typically. And when you receive a program from your coach or you're following a gym's program, there is a way that that coach in some way, shape or form has to evolve the program. And we're going to break it down one step at a time, beginning with hypertrophy. And Eric, we're more familiar or most familiar, I should say, with how you tend to like progressing patterns in terms of volume uh, with being the target. Um, if you can share general thoughts on that, uh, a lot of our audience, while they might not be you know, prepping for the competition stage in bodybuilding, they definitely involve, especially the CrossFitters, lots of volumes, and they might see these volumes evolve in a, a way that might be similar because a lot of them just simply do bodybuilding outright, not just getting their volume from CrossFit. And how do you think of that volume evolving over time, or sorry, uh, week to week in a short time within a mesocycle. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, probably the way that I like to do it, because there's a few less moving parts and there's less wild variations in total tr training stress, is to establish a, uh, a certain amount of volume. And if we're going to be talking about volume, uh, I think a useful operational definition um, is... Uh, just the number of sets per movement uh, to, or movement pattern or muscle group, if we're talking about it from a bodybuilding perspective. Um, certainly, volume load is a very common way to discuss volume. That's sets times reps times load. Um, but that's a very sensitive measurement to changes in load, to changes in the number of reps per set. Um, and it may not be reflective of the actual stimulus. So, for example, I'm not convinced that three by five um, at a heavy load is any more stimulating for strength than say three by four at a slightly heavier load, yet the volume would be substantially less. Um, and you could kind of take that example further. Um, likewise, from a hypertrophy perspective, where we think there's a, gr a stronger relationship with the amount of volume you do and uh, the amount of hypertrophy you might get, at least over time, uh, I'm not sure that three by eight is any less stimulating than three by 15. Um, but there's a much higher volume load calculation that will come out of that three by 15 
example. Um, but when we look at research, and there's actually a fair amount of it now, uh, when you're comparing, you know, let's say something like a three by eight to three by 15, and you do take that, those sets to failure, uh, from a hypertrophy stimulus standpoint in the long run, like if you were to maintain that, uh, that, that same set rep combination to failure, uh, let's say three days per week, and you had two groups who trained for eight weeks, uh, there, there's a pretty solid chance that they would have very similar hypertrophy outcomes. So despite this big disparity in volume load, you're getting a similar stimulus. So that means we probably want to use a, uh, the whole reason we're tracking volume is to get an idea of uh, the uh, an appropriate amount of training monitoring stress to make sure that someone is progressing and then to kind of keep our finger on the total stress load that we're giving an athlete and then to see when, when we need to manipulate it or not. Um, so I think it probably makes more sense, at least from my hypertrophy perspective and maybe a strength perspective, uh, to be tracking the number of sets in a given uh, like repetition zone. So what I will typically do is uh, for a strength athlete, the majority of their, their number of sets will fall in that one to five rep range between a five to 10 RPE. So your quote unquote strength training, and they will obviously have some other work outside of that rep range. Uh, and then for a bodybuilder, anything in say the, the six to 20 uh, rep range, any set that falls in there, this is an adequate uh, effort approximately to failure. So an RPE five to 10, I'll count that. Uh, and then how you manipulate those number of sets well, week to week or microcycle to microcycle, um, they either could be not manipulated at all and you could manipulate other aspects of, of their training or you could have a setup where you do change the number of sets week to week, either in an ascending or descending fashion. Um, and I think it depends on the goal and the program, uh, the the experience level of the athlete. Um, so my often default way of setting things up is first just establishing an appropriate amount of volume that we think is going to produce progressive overload. And I think it's important to make a distinction between progressive overload and implementing progressions uh, from week to week, because you may be able to not change anything and keep progressing if there's an adequate stimulus. It may be well above what you need to see progress. And you could even hold steady. And this is actually a really common thing you see in research, because research, we, <laughs> we normally use pretty poorly designed studies, uh, sorry, uh, training programs in studies because they're homogenized and we're trying to isolate one variable and they're certainly not things you would use in practice, but you will see people continually progress in the, in the studies where we have, um, you know, weekly testing or a midpoint. It's not as though they progress for one week and then they just stay the same for the next seven weeks. They're making progress week to week to week to week um, because it's an adequate stimulus. So I think sometimes we get too hung up on what change do we need to make from this workout to next week's workout on the same day. But that's not to say we shouldn't ever make them. It's just that if a stimulus uh, is, is achieved, if we have enough overload, that will probably be enough overload for a while. Uh, and I think it's a little easier from a monitoring perspective to maintain the level of volume and then make uh, intensity changes. You know, That could be in a novice lifter who can progress quite quickly relative to where they started. You can maintain the, the number of sets, maintain the, the target reps, and just increase load every session, just a linear progression. Uh, to, the, to the load until they can no longer even make a, uh, a small increment jump like two and a half kilos or five pounds. Um, and, you know, once this, this lifter is consistently unable to uh, add a, the next incremental progression to the, 
to the bar, even after a recovery period or even after ensuring that sleep and nutrition and all those things are in place on multiple lifts, then it's safe to say they're probably no longer a novice and it might be uh, worthwhile changing their progression scheme. And a common one that I do, and interrupt me if I'm just going off on too much of a tangent when you want to stop on any of these things, um, is a common thing that I would do is then start a uh, linear periodized kind of progression where microcycle to microcycle, the number of reps decreases as the load goes up, which just allows you to make a smaller increase in, in total stimulus. So for example, you could take a, uh, a three week or three microcycle progression and you could have um, three sets of five become three sets of four become three sets of three, making a uh, two and a half kg jump each week. And then you could recycle that starting two and a half kgs heavier so that you're starting with a new three by five load and kind of use that wave loading linear periodized approach until you run out, run out of runway there. And that's when uh, you, you might have to consider some more uh, intricate progressions where maybe you do add number of sets per week for like a, a period of, of time in a mesocycle, say in a quote unquote accumulation block before then doing something uh, that is that is lower in volume and uh, incorporates a taper and takes you closer to uh, your, your maximal strength to see if that paid off, quote unquote, uh, that time spent accumulating volume. Now with your bodybuilders, uh, obviously, you know, well, I, I, when you're in a, a, a cut, you are trying to you know, preserve as much muscle as you can. But when you're in the off season and you're, and you're bulking, you are, of course, trying to build as much muscle as you can. Um, where does this fall? And this is just honing in on volume and how the literature has suggested uh, that volume falls quite high on this, uh, I would say, um, determining factor for growth or for also that could be equated to work capacity potentially, um, that wouldn't we want to be adding uh, sets per week or would we potentially run into uh, overload that is not of a functional or favorable kind? Um, what are your thoughts there? For example, we know that uh, Dr. Isratel, who, who we mentioned we've heard you speak with, um, has in the past been used to, for bodybuilding purposes, uh, adding sets per week, uh, chasing more volumes over time. Not to say that load isn't important, um, not to say that he doesn't think so either, but we've been hearing him speak recently, uh, seeing less of a need to push volume with as much aggression and following more of what you've just described with perhaps even at least for him and other advanced lifters, just maybe even adding like a single set over the course of a mesocycle. So could you speak to how, uh, or, or uh, how, or if at all volume is still holding up in this uh, growth equation and might then based on that literature, you'd want to push more sets than you would load. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this all comes down to what's a reasonable time scale to advance volume. Um, so, a week is a pretty arbitrary time period, in my opinion. It is a, a useful time period from a logistical standpoint, as that's the, where our, our schedules often operate, and it's the way we think. You know, so that means that uh, whether you're in the field of exercise science or uh, the field of medicine or the field of logistics or whatever, uh, our planning timetables and our adjustment schedules fall within days, weeks, months, etc. Um, but there is no reason 
why, uh, just even if you, we go, right, what's the target variable of interest that's going to modify our outcome the most? Okay. Therefore we need to manipulate that week to week. Um, really we, we should be manipulating variables, uh, when needed, uh, to result in the adaptations we want. So to me, there, there's a very, uh, it depends on how you're doing this. Like if, some people, the way I see them set it up is they'll set up a certain level of volume and then they'll add a set to everything every week. And if you look at the typical like uh, session constructions, that's a ridiculously large increase in volume week to week. You know, that that's often sometimes like, let's say you're doing three sets on everything. That's a 33% increase in volume. That's, uh, that's I, I don't believe the assumption that there's ever a time week to week where you need to increase your volume by one third, you know? Um, and if you look at the, the amount of volume that someone might increase over an entire career, um, sometimes it's only as, as much as 33% globally to keep getting a, an adaptation depending on where they started. Um, but certainly, uh, the research would suggest that, uh, there is a, a very individual amount of volume that each person probably needs. And there are a lot of factors that probably go into it. Um, this is something we're still teasing out. I would, I think that one of those factors that, uh, is likely something that drives volume higher is training experience and training age. Um, and you can kind of see this just from, uh, if you were to try to take an approach where you're only doing a fixed number of sets, um, and you were only trying to progress a load once you could reach the top end of a rep range. So this is what I, I call double, double progression. So let's say, for example, you were doing three sets of eight to 15, um, and your goal was just to add reps over time with the same load. Um, some advanced lifters have tried this and find that they, they never get to 15. Um, they, they, they'll get stuck somewhere in there. They're grinding away at like three by 12, 12, 11, or something like that. Um, and it's not until they add another set or add another exercise that there's enough stimulus for them to start seeing that progress tick up again. So certainly you will get to a point where simply attempting to add weight to the bar is not enough to create stimulus. And really adding weight to the bar, I don't even think should be seen as a stimulus. It should be seen as an, the, the outcome of an adaptation. Um, because it's it certainly like if you look at the grand scheme of things, if you're doing, let's say, 15 sets per muscle group per week for every other muscle group, you might be doing 70 sets per week as a bodybuilder. Let's just say that 70 working sets. Um, and if you look at the total volume load, the total stimulus, uh, it's some amount. Uh, but whether you went up two and a half kgs on one lift is a minuscule amount of that total stress and probably is not the linchpin to whether or not that muscle group is going to keep growing. Uh, however, we're focused on it because it's the next, next progression. So it kind of has this availability bias in our mind as, man, I'm not growing unless I can add two and a half kg to the bar. That's kind of a the perspective if you're, if you're focusing on load progression. Um, but in reality, the ability to add that two and a half kg is the outcome of making an adaptation of getting a little more muscle size, a little more cross-sectional area, and hopefully uh, the resultant additional force production. And the same thing is true um, when you're adding sets. Um, and just because volume is an important variable uh, for uh, inducing hypertrophy, it only is to a point. And then you probably have a very long period of time uh, where that, once you're past the beginner level, where that level of volume is an appropriate stimulus. And I think it makes a lot more sense in general, but not always, 
uh, to set up a system where you are keeping your finger on the uh, quote unquote pulse of your training program, seeing if you're actually making progress in, in terms of being able to add that two and a half kg to the bar and then adding volume once you need to. Um, that way you get away from some of those traps of just this kind of endless or unnecessary addition of volume, uh, which adds a lot more to the uh, stress side of the equation and not necessarily much to the stimulus side. Um, now that said, there are often points where uh, you need to add a significant stimulus and you need to overreach a little more to make progress. So for example, for the advanced bodybuilder or the advanced powerlifter who's trying to add a little more size as a vehicle to strength, um, the reality is, is that the minimum amount of volume or stress total you need to make progress is pretty close to the maximum amount you can handle. There's not this uh, wide range of response you can get. If you've been in the weight room a decade and you've been training progressively for that decade, if you're making any progress, you're doing something right. Um, and, and, and hemming and hawing over whether or not you added uh, 20 kilos to your total in the last two years or 15 is, is kind of uh, silly because like, hey, you're progressing. You're doing something right. You've been lifting for a full decade. Um, so, uh, whether or not, you know, adding an additional set or adding a load, you can't know what is better. Um, and it could just as well be inferior if you're adding, uh, sets too quickly and, and you're overwhelming your recu recuperative process. Um, so anyway, what I'm getting at is that at a certain point you may need to, or it may be beneficial to add sets to have that kind of accumulation block, if you will, uh, before then you know, allowing some of that fatigue to dissipate and seeing if it paid off. Um, but I don't think that point is uh, where, where most intermediates or novices are. I think that's, that's when you've been lifting for a fair amount of time um, where uh, you might have to, to push a little more through the system to see that needle move and to actually be able to assess whether or not it was successful in, in, in inducing an adaptation, if that makes sense. It, it does. Absolutely. And, you know, we had, we, we promote, long-term health with training and having the training be, be sustainable. Um, yet, you know, just, just recently we've been aware of, of exactly what you're highlighting versus perhaps some of the more, what we're recognizing now as aggressive progressions with, with volume. And, you know, as, as a, at least in, in my own experience, I was adding sets to almost everything and just, Finding that my body was feeling pretty beat down, having to deload you know, quite frequently, um, and having been training for over a decade, yeah, over a decade now, there's almost something about being able to go in, and there's just like a joy in adding just this tiny amount, uh, like 0.5 kg or the like one repetition versus the one set which reminds you that like, hey, you know, if you've been doing this for over a decade, you love the process. Mm -hmm. So it's almost more enjoyable to recognize like, <clears throat> I can still get better and make some gains, even with some disruption to this homeostasis or LP over what I've done in the past, the linear progression off of just the week prior in some way, shape or form, because I've found that I'm able to extend cycles a bit longer before deloading. Uh, less achy in, in tendons and in joints, and just looking at the program, recognizing the relative increases of volume, just seemed to me, uh, or it seems to me, befuddling now 
when at the end of the day, like you said, it's, it's just finding a way to continue that uh, progression in, in just some sustainable form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you're not wrong. And I think um, there, there's a certain point where I start saying to my athletes and to myself and to my wife, because she's my training partner and she's been in the gym a while too. It's like, um, I, I say progression's progression. And uh, because I remember when I was like, oh, I only put on 10 pounds. Like, could I put on 20 or whatever? Like when I was a couple <laughs> of years in, but now like, like I was, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a part of my books that I've just rewritten and we're in the process of releasing uh, back in 2015, where I just mentioned what my body weight was and my best total, like best possible gym total I could have. And uh, I, I was like, oh, I should update this. And it was only like an addition of like five kilos in three years. Um, and, uh, and I was like, well, that's, that's good. You know, like if you added, you know, five kilos every couple of years to your total, you know, you'd be a pretty good master's lifter at some point, you know, and that's kind of the, the, the self-talk that I have now. Um, and I think, you know, some people might be like, oh, that's, that's defeatist. And you, you, you could be pushing harder. You could find something to, to improve more. And it's, it's like, well, I, I have, you know, I've tried a lot of things and I still work very hard and I've pushed myself to injury. Um, and I, I could be wrong, but at least for me and, and for many of my athletes, it does seem like there's only so much you can hope to get out, uh, you know, squeezing blood from that stone. Um, and it's not that you shouldn't try things, especially when you're still competing and if that's your goal. Um, but I think, um, there, there does become a point where almost any progress should be, uh, should be rewarded and, and, and seen as like, this is awesome. Um, and and yeah, I think the, the, trying to seek what's optimal becomes this, that, that curve flattens out a lot. There's not some secret thing you're going to stumble on uh, that is going to all of a sudden uh, take you back to your novice level gains um, at a certain stage. And, you know, with, with all this said, I really think there are ways to add sets that, that totally make sense. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. So, for example, if you're a bodybuilder, instead of adding, you know, one set to everything, you could add... Um, you could pick a couple muscle groups that you're going to focus on for a given time period. So you might put, uh, let's say, two thirds of your muscle groups on a maintenance dose of volume or just a lower level. Let's say that's, you know, eight to 12 sets per muscle group. And then one third of your muscle groups, let's say two ones that you're focusing on, maybe that's, you know, calves and uh, upper body push or something like that. Uh, And you would push those volumes up over time, let's say, within a, a mesocycle from 14 to 20 sets, you know, uh, and just focus on them. And I think, and then you could rotate them through, uh, do these, these sequential specialization blocks, if you will. And, uh, that way that the total volume for the system isn't anything crazy. Um, but you can focus on a given few muscle groups and that's a totally viable approach. And then, you know, you push them for a while, you recover, you, you put them on maintenance and then you, you switch to the next couple muscle groups. And I think, that's very viable. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I don't know if it's necessary or better than anything else, but in the end, all of our different approaches for progression are just trying to encourage progressive overload. And if you are starting with an adequate amount of stress, um, progressive overload is occurring, even if you don't manipulate the key variable. Um, and, and then you just have to worry about, well, you probably do want some manipulation of variables from a, uh, from a standpoint of, you know, avoiding the things like monotony and strain, uh, which are just mathematical constructs that, that we see are related to, uh, stress, injury, illness, 
uh, things when you keep like if you were to have the same workout Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, with the high 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 RPE, the same set and rep com- rep combination. I wouldn't recommend that. Like I do think within a microcycle, there should be variations of numbers of sets, uh, rep ranges, RPEs, and exercise selection. Um, but the next week could look quite similar, um, but still have those variation between days uh, where you're just seeing what you can what you can add to the bar. Um, and that is technically like a sort of, sort of a non-periodized approach, depending on how you set up that week, or you could drop the reps at weight and that would be a, uh, a linear periodized approach. There's, there are so many ways you can do it. And I don't think, um, we can say definitively that, that any one is better than the other. So long as you follow general principles, like ensuring that there is overload, uh, and then over time, probably if you're a strength athlete, having some linearity. So getting more specific as you get close to when you want to test strength or compete, uh, you know, dropping volume down a bit uh, and then, you know, having more specific movement patterns that are going to be close to what you test. But outside of those big general principles, a lot of it is just very much, you know, what works and uh, what have we observed over time and then what uh, makes sense and then what is specific to the individual need. Yeah, I know one of the things I'm challenged with most as a coach is often uh, not overthinking uh, writing programming or, or, or training or training and such, uh, and remembering to always stick to those uh, principles. Because um, sometimes I feel if I think too much about it, I try to make it too complex and, and it's the forest for the trees. And always Absolutely. coming back, uh, to those what we know is true, uh, because I especially feel the as you're learning and the more you try to educate yourself, the more you can get in your head. Uh, and make it too crazy up there. Mm-hmm. You're not wrong, man. And I think um, it's also difficult because there's a whole lot of information overload out there. You know, there's there's a bunch of jerks like me who are on podcasts telling you what to do. And, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> when their information conflicts, and especially if they have a logical rationale, then you, your, your temptation is to be like, well, I'll just do all of them because they like that sounds right. And so does that. So we're, we're going to combine 14 different things and I'll just do, you know, blood flow restriction on my isolation work. I'll do a linear set progression on everything else. I'll do these drop sets and myo reps here. Uh, I'll use accommodating resistance on every other day. And then you look up and you have this Frankenstein thing and uh, it looks really cool, but it's quite complicated. It's really unnecessary. And most importantly, it's a less controlled environment for you to be able to isolate variables and to see what worked. Um, and that's something that I've learned from being a, a scientist is I will establish what are my needs? What do I need to set up? What is a nice uh, symmetrical appropriate program for the goals of my client that matches what their desires are and what they like and what equipment they have access to. But then I'm going to keep it as simple as possible outside of that so that when something either does or doesn't work, I have a higher probability of being able to uh, subscribe that success or failure to the system that I just generated. So that when we make the next change, I'm not, you know, shooting in the dark per se and not knowing what would be the, the next change to make. Or if did it work because of the, one of the 18 different things that I, I may have included. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes from... Uh, wanting the best way now versus realizing that it may take a while to find uh, what potentially works best for you. Correct? Absolutely. It's the kind of this, 
it's the um, you know the whole fear of missing out thing that that humans have in general. Um, and uh, I remember being a you know eight year old kid and hating to go to bed because things were happening in the world. You know, and me going having this ridiculous bedtime of nine p.m. Uh, was 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 I was missing out. And this not to like condescend everyone who who kind of chases optimal like they're me as an eight year old and I'm so advanced, but. I, that is my, the thought in my head when I relate to people who are like, but what if I could be doing it better? And I'm like, you don't know if you could be doing it better. You need to just train and then see if it, if you're improving, um, you know, and, and all this time you're, you're spending like, like I'm all for intense, uh, investigation and application of effort, resources, and materiel to, to learn things that we can learn. You know, that like if you've ever conducted research, it is a huge pain in the ass Um, recruiting subjects, getting enough through having dropouts occur, running statistical analysis, making mistakes, trying to get it published and trying to figure out what the hell the data even means. That requires a a large portion of your life that, that that can be soul sucking at times, but can also be very rewarding. But being on a, a message board or listening to multiple podcasts or reading three different books well, that's useful and very helpful for your education, but then hemming and hawing over whether or not you should be adding sets week to week or maybe dropping them down. And then which, which should I choose because I want to get the most gains on my squat uh, is a big waste of time. And you should just pick one or the other and do it and then record it and then pay attention and then see what happens over time. I think, um, sure, we, I'm not saying we shouldn't be discussing what's optimal or that there aren't certain things that are better than others. But when it comes to uh, the fringes of what we know and what we can know, uh, like what's the best individual progression scheme, because we just don't know that yet. And I'm not sure we, we really ever will, or it'll just become more nuanced about when one is more appropriate versus the other, depending on your goals, depending on the individual, et cetera. Um, when you're in the fringes of things we, we, we don't know and we can't know, and that you're going to just, just have to see how it works, that's what you got to do. You got to get in there and you got to train and you're going to be going to the gym on like four times a week anyway. So uh, what's stopping you? Um, yeah. Just like turn off your Wi-Fi for a little bit, go for a walk, you know, get a hug from a friend. And then, you know, next week you can start training and, and try the new system. One question I had on volume uh, and these progressions was sometimes, I believe you've spoken on this before that sometimes you'll get athletes who are doing these a crazy amount of volumes before uh, necessarily weren't um, not progressing uh, or uh, maybe, maybe they weren't, I can't remember exactly how you, you uh, uh, spoke about it, but you just, they would be doing uh, a lot of sets uh, uh, more than you would ever prescribe. And you've actually had to take them back down. Um, can you maybe speak uh, on that a little bit and like the rationale or why that might have occurred and, and things like that. Yeah, I think um, one one consequence of the whole idea of you know volume being one of the primary drivers of hypertrophy, and uh, the whole concept of you know you adapt to a prior stimulus, is that some typically over neurotic, uh, over over motivated, which is you know good qualities have aimed in the right direction, uh, and perhaps a little a little fearful, kind of like that fear of missing out thing, is that. Uh, some athletes will come to me and they have completely cornered themselves. You know, they have, um, they've progressed their volume a whole bunch to the point where they are beat up, not really seeing progress. 
and they feel like they can't reduce volume because now I've adapted to this amount. Um, which it's funny. Like if you think about that from any other perspective for any other sport, um, you would be like, Oh, it doesn't make any sense. Like, well, I've been playing basketball six times a day because that's the only way I think I can get better. And if I, if I start playing basketball only once every day, I'm going to get worse at basketball. Like, I think we would all start chuckling a little bit at that. Like, Oh, that that's ridiculous. You know, or, uh, or the same, even just to, to something a little more direct, like an endurance athlete who is running, uh, just the whole day, you know, like, like not even having any kind of taper or process to get ready for a marathon, but they are running way more than is necessary. Like we know that that results in overtraining. Um, but for some reason in the bodybuilding world, we, we think that it's totally different and that the relationship between volume and muscle is magic and exists outside of the way physiology works. Uh, but the reality is, is that it, it is almost certainly a, a bell curve response that there is, as you add volume, uh, there's a nonlinear, uh, mind you, uh, response in that as you add sets, you get a little more hypertrophy, but for example, doing 10 sets is nowhere close to getting twice the response to doing five. It might give you another 10 or 20%. And then by the time, let's say the peak of the responses for this random made up situation is 15 sets. Well, 15 sets compared to 10 is probably only an increase of five to 10% more hypertrophy. If you could, you could even know that, which you couldn't, but let's say we, we track this individual with, uh, you know, ultrasound over time or something like that. Um, and then there's this, this, this annoying phase of this bell curve where say from 15 to 20 sets, you get the same hypertrophy. Uh, but all you've done is add a little more, uh, maybe you're improving your workload capacity if we look for the silver lining. But for the most part, you're just, you know, fatiguing yourself a bit uh, without any extra, uh, you know, comeback for it. And then there's this increasingly annoying part of this bell curve where you're still making progress, but it's actually slower than it would be than if you were doing uh, less volume. So you're starting to come back down the other side of the slope, but the slope is still above baseline. So now you're maybe doing 25, even 30 sets. You're still making some some grinding progress, but man, it feels awful, you know. And you're really, really struggling to be motivated. Uh, you're probably dealing with some niggles. You're probably making some exercise swaps, uh, wearing your belt a little tighter just to feel safe, uh, you know. Maybe doing a, a few brief prayers in your head to whatever your your religion of choice is, so that when you do your RDL, you don't enter Snap City. Uh, and it's not until you've done this insane amount of volume that you're actually doing so much you're not progressing. Um, and even then we have some research where, uh, especially in less trained lifters doing a really, really high amount of volume, there can be no change from start to finish or even a slight, uh, decline in, in, in strength and hypertrophy, which we've actually observed now. So there is clearly this kind of bell curve response. And for that reason, even though it is a primary variable, we still want to be, uh, conservatively aggressive, if you will. So we want to be doing what we think is an appropriate amount of volume and ensuring we're seeing progress, but not doing so much. And I've seen it time and time and time again, like you alluded to, where someone will come to me and the amount of volume they're doing is absurd and I reduce it and they start making better progress. Um, and this is, I, this, is, this is a phenomenon that anyone who's been coaching for a while will notice. And it might immediately make you question the relationship between volume and hypertrophy. But that's not what's going on. The, the thing you should, you should question is just not even question, but it, it, it speaks to uh, fitness and fatigue. You knowing that the more you do of something, it generates two factors. You know, the adaptation you're seeking, 
but also the fatigue that you 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 accrue in, in the process of trying to achieve that. Uh, and there's a um, you know Bannister is a, is a is an author from way back in the day who proposed the two factor model fitness and fatigue, saying that you will quickly accumulate fatigue uh, from doing exercise, but it will also quickly dissipate with recovery and rest, um, and you will also accumulate adaptations. And those will, you know, accrue slower and also dissipate slower. So therefore, you need to do something about this fatigue because it will mask your fitness. And this is something I see a lot. There, there will be many times in, in, a, in a lifter's career if they've been around the block long enough and they've tried out different programs of, of varying amounts of volume. But I remember when I jumped on, uh, this is probably going to date me a little bit, uh, Max OT. Uh, which is low volume, mostly four to eight rep range training to failure, uh, like once every five days. And I'd say you're doing maybe six to eight sets per muscle group per week. And I made really good progress for like the first mesocycle. And then it kind of just petered out. And I became like this, uh, this zealot in my head, like, oh my God, I found the answer for me. Cause I was making these linear, uh, progressions like I hadn't made since I was a novice. And really all I did was basically a taper, you know? Uh, I dumped all this fatigue. I made progress. I felt recovered. And then I got to a point where the runway ran out and my body was like, great. I've all the fatigue's gone. I feel great. When are you going to actually challenge me again? You know? Um, and it wasn't until I started uh, doing more volume uh, that I started to progress. So I think that that's a common thing. And it, that helps you as a coach because it allows you to kind of wipe the slate clean um, because you don't know where they are when they, when they're totally overdoing volume, and they're barely making progress or not making progress despite an insane amount, um, assuming everything like nutrition, rest, all that stuff's in place, which is not a safe assumption ever. But theoretically, let's say it is in this example, uh, by lowering their volume and putting them on something a little more balanced, a little more structured, and uh, and basically kind of like a low moderate volume, um, then you can see, well, could they progress on this low moderate volume level? And at the very least, they're going to see this tapering effect, make some short-term gains and feel a ton better and reduce their, their, uh, you know, their injury risk and all that. But then from there, then you can know where, where maybe you should actually increase, uh, versus making some more conservative drop or, or just mucking around with frequency or something like that when it's clear that they're really wrecking themselves. Yeah. We, we actually get a bunch of people who come to us and you know, just through, I think, sound scientific programming, you can help prevent a lot of uh, a lot of injury that we see in the gym is, is preventable preventable and we can uh, really manipulate uh, the programming to uh, be written in a way that allows for long-term health and progress where people will come to us very banged up we'll start them with week one of training and it will be like one set of a particular exercise, we, you know, through video feedback, if they're a remote client, make sure that their biomechanics are sound, meeting the, like, all the basic check marks they need for their technique. And even after sometimes just a week, they'll be like, I feel great. And it's like, well, yeah, you've just been going so hard that you just needed to back off, even if just slightly, to have that fatigue dissipate. And then sometimes people, even in that first month, will go from having been labeled themselves as injured because, you know, we, we treat injury and training as being different rather than seeing them as perhaps being something that can go hand in hand. Um, and that they might even PR 
and again speaks to that fitness fatigue model where if you're finding yourself and you're listening to this in that situation where maybe because you haven't been progressing for some time you've been just layering on more and more you might actually feel better and do better with a little bit less kind of just hang out there for a little while make tiny adjustments like eric said to load and you'll find that you can still make quantifiable progress um Eric, before uh, we dive into perhaps just more like specific details of advancing strength and perhaps even power, do you have any other considerations for volume and, and have, has anyone uh, helped shape this current standpoint that you now have on your, your take to volume? Has it been like this for some good time now or have you had some outside influence help uh, really solidify your standpoint? Oh man, I've had, I've had a ton of outside influences and, um, I'm very grateful for them. Um, you know, it's funny while you were talking, I just found myself really nodding my head. Um, my major advisor, uh, Dr. John Cronin, who's, uh, done a lot of work for a lot of years. Um, you know, one random paper I was writing either for my PhD or perhaps it was the, uh, a bodybuilding review that I wrote for resistance training. Um, I mentioned, I was talking about in the volume section of this review, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, how, you know, it makes sense to in, increase volume over time as needed uh, from a career perspective, not week to week. And, um, and he made a little comment in there that was just, or get more savvy. Um, and it made me realize that, you know, it's very, it's a, it's a very crude thing to do just to increase volume. You know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't ever do it. Um, and it is one of those big picture variables, low hanging fruit that is related to uh, faster progress. But like you just alluded to with when you have a, uh, an athlete who comes in who has not been progressing, has been piling on volume, there's so many other things you can manipulate first, especially if your goal is a performance outcome. Hypertrophy, it becomes a little, it is a little more kind of one-to-one. It's not just, just do more, but you know, you want to make sure you're actually targeting the, the muscles effectively and and creating an environment for growth uh, with, with nutrition and sleep, et cetera. But, you know, for a strength athlete, man, when you're looking at it, what all goes into strength, hypertrophy is a significant component, but there's also stuff like self-efficacy, uh, you know, neuromuscular adaptations, architectural adaptations. Um, there are uh, so many things that are, that are unrelated to hypertrophy that can be manipulated and should be manipulated before you just go ahead and decide to just turn the volume dial up. Um, and a lot of the time is you, you can use periodization to manipulate the recovery side of it. You can take the same amount of volume and just distribute it in a more logical way and think about, uh, stress and recovery on a week to week or day to day basis. Um, and you can come up with a, you know, a, a more appropriate way to set that up. Another person who's influenced me greatly is uh, Dr. Mike Zerdos, and he's done a lot of the pioneering research on uh, more modern manipulations of undulating periodization. His uh, PhD dissertation specifically looked at altering the order of hypertrophy power and strength so that power comes before strength to allow recovery from the high damage, high volume session of hypertrophy so that you're in a better position to perform on that strength day. Um, so I would say he's been a big influence on me as well. Um, and, uh, just thinking about how can I take the same total amount of volume and then, uh, organize it in such a way to maximize recovery, um, so that we get the best balance with those big picture variables. 
So I think training distribution, training organization is really, really important as well. Uh, and then another uh, gentleman who's influenced me a lot is Jeff Alberts from very much a uh, all longevity and big picture perspective. For those who don't know, he's been lifting weights uh, longer than most 20 year old tw- people in their twenties have been alive and um, has only had like one minor calf injury the whole time and uh, is, is, is a very high level natural bodybuilder. And he's always figured out what is, man, the, the, the least amount of volume that I can do to progress. Not that that's always the way to, to do it. Um, but because he looks at it from a career based perspective of, you know, every time I step foot in the gym, every time I'm pushing a set to failure, that is there, there's inherent risk. And therefore I want to do what I can to make progress, but not, uh, you know, pile on additional work because that could affect it long-term. And he very much focuses on, uh, quality over quantity. And I think the proof is in the pudding there. Um, and that is something that he's been successful with it, both as an athlete and as a coach. Yeah. And I think the more that we get involved with this, it's just evident that I think as long as the athlete has realistic understandings of their respective sport and expectations for themselves based on past experience, perhaps that the coach can begin to guide them through that uh, very appropriately. I think the, the challenge perhaps then falls on the athlete to not be swayed by the social media posts and the people who are perhaps progressing at a faster rate, but who might not win the long-term game, right? This is a different story for someone who, though this might not be anyone listening, does represent a very small part of the population who perhaps has to peak within a specific time, say within like a quadrennial for the Olympics. But Mm. for most of us, we can tend to play a longer game, a healthier game, and a smarter game. Uh, Did you want to say something, Kyle? Yeah, hopefully this doesn't uh, get us too off track, but something I... um, that came into mind when you were talking about Jeff and how he looks at it from a career standpoint um, would be what if you had, and I think this is one of the reasons that uh, Mike or Mike Isertel that is originally thought of the MRV is what if someone's career for a sport was 10 years and he was, he had, I think this was a long time ago and he may have changed kind of how he talks about it now, but it said, well, if someone's career is 10 years for their sport, they have to try to get to their best uh, shape or ability as fast as possible. So we want to push the max recoverable end as opposed to kind of what's the least I can do because it's over a career. How, does that, how could that change? And, and does that make sense? Kind of what I'm, I'm asking there. Hopefully I put that in a good. hundred percent. Yeah. He, he, I remember him bringing that up on the, um, the volume round table way back in the day with uh, the Jeff Nippert hosted. And, yeah, um, yeah. and I do certainly agree uh, that if you are someone who is a has the potential to be a high level athlete, um, the motivating factors change a little bit. The perspective changes a little bit. Um, and however, <laughs> there's there's two ways of looking at this. So, for example, I, I have the, the the huge honor and privilege of being uh, Bryce Lewis's coach from his first powerlifting meet to uh, his most recent competition at World Championships, where he uh, won the 105s in the IPF. And we do actually have to think about like, what are the attempts of the other people who are in the, like the top, top three medal positions? Um, you know, I spend some time thinking about who's going to show up, who's in what weight class, uh, you know, who are we going to have to worry about at nationals? Um, 
how far do we need to push that subtotal if there's someone who's with a big deadlift, like for example, Christoph Wurzbecki, and and all these things do come into play. And I'm thinking, you know, look, okay, if Bryce is feeling a little beat up and I know he wants to take a year off, then we got to get this right because this is his shot at winning a world championship, that kind of thing. So all those thoughts I've had in the last couple of years. Um, and those are very different thoughts than I have about myself. Those are very different thoughts than 99% of athletes, even in the same sport, think about because they just aren't um, at that competitive level. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's reasonably valid. Now, where I say the other side of this is that if you get this wrong and you jack someone up because you're overly aggressive, um, you are also not going to get them to the peak of their career, uh, but you, they might not get there with a greater harm. It, it may be irreversible. It may result in injury or burnout versus just simply not progressing fast enough. And if you talk to anyone involved in high-performance sport, who's training extremely high level athletes, one common, very common theme you'll see in successful coaches is that they believe if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that when they inherit a high level athlete, if they're working for, let's say uh, the high performance sport facility or, or organization in any country, and all of a sudden someone walks up to, up to them and they go, Hey, this is Tom. You know, Tom is 19. Tom is the, the best uh, junior level competitor in the entire country. Um, he's making great progress. Here's what he's doing. Here's his, uh, his coach from his hometown who we'd like to introduce you to. And you guys can come, come together up with a plan. The first thing that that SNC uh, professional does is they try not to crap their pants. And then they ask the, the coach, okay, what have you been doing that, that, that works? And then they start making small alterations and maintaining uh, what has currently already got them to that level versus going, look, man, so uh, next Olympics is in three years. Right now, you're sitting right around fifth or sixth. We need to do everything within our power, experimental or not, risky or not, to push you so we can get that that podium. Because there's a really good chance that somewhere in year two, uh, they're going to get jacked up and not make it to the Olympics at all. So I think there's a, you have to realize that you're, you're holding this, this uh, fragile unicorn sometimes in, in your hands. Not that elite athletes are fragile by any means, but you don't want to mess that up. Um, so you have to be cautious as well. So I think there is a balancing act there. Yeah. There becomes challenging, especially in a sport like weightlifting, where especially as weightlifting has grown in the States, these youth athletes and junior athletes have more chances at uh, high level competition, international competition mm -hmm. and having a really good youth athlete, uh, doesn't, always translate to having a great open field, you know, senior level athlete. And like you said, you know, you really can't undo that damage once it's been done uh, on their uh, competitive path. So it, it is a, a fine line. And I think coaches are inclined at least those who might not be as experienced or as educated to apply quote unquote, like advanced techniques early. But uh, you know, this, this longer route does seem uh, to provide, or at least now have also like competitive opportunities for people, uh, with how popular master's divisions have become in sports like weightlifting and powerlifting, you can just do forever. Right. So, uh, even CrossFit, uh, you can continue to satisfy that competitive spirit that you might have even as you age, but it's very easy to 
if you do the same thing without any uh, breaks, right? Like you'd mentioned for this high-performing athlete, a year-long break, or as Mike T would have like a, a pivot that involves more GPP or perhaps even the inclusion of like other activities or sports. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way that you can play this long-term game is, is totally in your court and there's no one way of doing it. But and I think people will mistake this for perhaps more of like a babying method, but as you mentioned prior, it can still lead to progress. Yeah, definitely. And this is not at all my area of expertise, but um, I know there is some data in the uh, long-term athlete development, kind of youth athlete development sphere, where there's a phenomenon of uh, athletes who peak uh, as youth athletes, as junior athletes, and they sometimes they don't ever get past that point, um, which I haven't seen much in strength or power sport. Um, but I have seen it in other sports where they were amazing at 18, but they never quite ticked over to being that amazing person in their mid twenties, uh, where they're actually competitive outside of the, uh, the junior kind of level. Um, and I've seen it speculated that this has to do with early specialization and not taking that kind of long-term view. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's just some inherent quality to those athletes that they mature faster and then plateau or what have you. But I think that that's, that's something that should be considered is, um, is that it, it may be that you need to match up training needs and psychological needs uh, of, of the athlete that kind of match up with their growth and maturity, both from a, a mental and emotional and physical perspective uh, so that you can nurture them into their, their highest performance. And that maybe trying to rush that, that, that process could have potential downsides or might not even get you there at all. But um, it is a balancing act. And I mean, if you look at, you also can't ignore the high performance systems uh, that, that start, you know, kids very, very young, um, train them hard and now are dominating the entire world. You know, if you look at like the Chinese or, or back in the day, the, the Eastern Bloc systems, but there are some, some interesting things in those systems where they don't specialize really, really early. Uh, they are training. They are making them competent athletes from a, uh, you know, a physical capability perspective, but it's not like the person who is six years old and may eventually become a 23 year old weightlifting champion is doing snatches at six. That's not what's happening. So I think, um, I think that there's a lot of nuance to this. It's outside of my area of expertise. Um, but I do acknowledge that there, there is a different perspective you have to take when you're working with someone who has potential to be, you know, a world champion or close to it versus, um, your average person who is lifting to be the best they can be. Just, just a funny anecdote, uh, about this high, uh, a high performing athlete who has uh, through other circumstances, won this long uh, con, so to speak. And there's, uh, she has just won now. What was the 75 is now the, actually, no, she's an 81 kilo weightlifter, Lydia Valentine out of Spain. And she, uh, has passed her prime, but she's actually continued to win medals despite her total coming down because she was at least as of now has remained one of the only <clears throat> clean lifters at a time when Russians were just beating her left and right. So now that the cleaner, she's winning more medals, even though her total is coming down because she's still able to perform better than the rest of the field. Um, it's just a funny little anecdote there, but uh, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and, 
Eric, we want to be respectful of, of your time because we, you know, we mentioned that we, I would love to hear more. Let's say if you had a newer athlete or even if it was a youth athlete, though I know that the development side of things is not perhaps your expertise in getting into the progression, maybe like similar to how we described that microcycle progression for strength and for power. Uh, is this a, we can certainly see this topic if you imagine that taking some more time for another time, uh, if you wanted to come back on, or if, if you had some thoughts that you wanted to include now, just want to make sure we don't keep you on longer than we ought to. Nah, man, let's march on. Carry on my wayward son. <laughs> All right. So um, we have a, a strength athlete. Um, uh, who and, and actually, maybe we can take a step back. If uh, this podcast will come out right after we've spoken with Mike T, if you've listened to the Mike T podcast, you heard him explain how he keeps RPE the same within his what he calls a developmental plan as cycle, cycle as uh, the athlete will then respond to their uh, prescribed uh, or sorry, their uh, the athlete will. Uh, basically auto-regulate that load to match the given RPE. Um, do you, Eric, follow something similar for strength athletes who are looking to ultimately improve one RM strength, or do you have a slightly different take on it? I know that you've done a, a lot of work with RPE and, and have done literary reviews and research on RPE, so I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, and, and Mike T is another person who's influenced me greatly and uh, to my own benefit. Um, so the, the, the system I used to work within for years, uh, was that I would have someone, you know, train in the ways we just talked about for the last hour and then conclude that with some kind of taper into an AMRAP test or a one RM test, uh, depending on whether they were a physique athlete or a strength athlete and whether they were closer to competition or further away. Um, and I just felt like that's what we needed to do. And there were downsides to that in that you were betting the entire farm on a single week or a single day. Uh, and that that could be psychologically devastating to some athletes. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, some athletes are a little more clutch. Some are a little less clutch. You might just have a shitty night's sleep the night before all kinds of things can go wrong on the day. Um, and that became something that I saw was not worth it, but I didn't know what to do differently. Uh, so then enter RPE and uh, the, the concept of doing, say, a single at a moderately high RPE. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, like having a system that directly you can derive an estimated 1RM from uh, that can at least tell you, even if it's not a single, like, you know, a triple at a 8 RPE, even you, if you can compare that to the last time you did a triple at 8 RPE. And then, hold on, you take it a step further and you start to purposely program uh, these kind of uh, barometers into your program so you can always get an idea of where you're at. Uh, now, you can actually avoid testing altogether for the most part, except for maybe deciding, well, I do actually want to run a mock meet every now and then so that I'm uh, you know, not shocked by that, that experience. Um, and maybe I'm doing all the lifts together, you know, snatch, hand, clean and jerk or the big three, just so it's not... I'm not trying to derive, you know, what, what can I deadlift four hours after a competition started based on me starting with that lift on, on a Thursday. That's not the same, right? So um, outside of creating the competition experience to have a more uh, accurate idea of what you can do with all three lifts together for a power lifter, um, I really like the concept of having a single at a six to a nine RPE, anywhere in that range, depending on the block. So for example, I have 
straight up stolen this from Mike T. And uh, thank you, Mike, if you're listening to where if I have someone who is in a, uh, like I say, a more volume focused block or further out from their competition. So if you were to look at this from kind of a, a periodization perspective, they're doing less specific exercises, less specific rep ranges, but they might start one of those volume days. Let's say they're going to go in and do three by eight uh, on, on squats. They might start with that with a single at a six or a seven RPE. And while a six or a seven RPE sounds low, when you think about it, that's their four or five rep max. So we're, we're talking about something in the range of 85 to 90% of one RM ish. Uh, and that's a, that's, that's a, a heavy lift uh, and, and does something. And I've found that this is actually smooths the transition from volume blocks to intensity, especially for people who tend to um, struggle with transferring rep strength to max strength. Uh, but it also keeps your finger on the pulse of the training program, like I mentioned earlier, to where you know um, what what is their roughly estimated 1RM from that single at a relatively high RPE. And I think uh, you can do that with, with, you know, triples at eight. Like I said, you could do it with singles at a seven, singles at an eight, singles at a nine, doubles at a seven, whatever. I think so long as you're somewhere in that like one to five RM range and you're keeping that in as a regular part of your training, uh, at least, you know, every few microcycles at the very least, uh, then you can have this constant knowledge of whether or not their their strength is going up or down. And you will see that it does do both. It goes up and down week to week. Uh, and so long as that kind of up and down uh, trend is still curving upwards so that you're not only your, your one rep max on any given day is going up, but also your one rep minimum, uh, then you know that that kind of band of strength that you can expect is, is going in the right direction. And that's a really useful tool uh, as a coach to, to have an idea of if, is, is what I'm doing working. Yeah. So I, sorry, I'm just <laughs> listening and, and thinking about it. It's so great that we've just had Mike on and then to, to kind of follow this up with, with a discussion where we were kind of bringing it all together now talking from volume into strength. Of course, Mike works almost exclusively with competitive powerlifters, so we didn't quite get that. It's just an emerging, no pun intended for Mike, uh, of two great topics. You know, I, I found in myself that um, also just from a, a technique standpoint too and confidence standpoint, uh, think the RP, like the, you know, the as he alluded to, it's now like a meme, like the RP8 single meme. But just checking in while I'm doing my volume, if I'm not running, uh, like a DUP kind of concurrent um, hypertrophy power strength block, it's nice to just have that check-in from a confidence standpoint because your technique under heavy load, right? That's going to be a different process, a different mentality. It just, like you said, it, it keeps a pulse on it. It doesn't really throw a curveball at you. And you don't have that problem that you had uh, or that linear periodization initially proposed or presented by having uh, the previous fitness characteristics almost go to waste, right? If you were to jump from volume to strength. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, it's, it, it falls right in line with the rationale for why undulating models were, were, were generated and why block models were generated. Um, and it's a really pragmatic tool for maintaining the specific skill you want. And it's just so little stress when you think about it. You know, like a, a single at a, I know I, Mike does a lot of singles at eight, but I, I play around pretty fair amount with a single at a six or a seven in a volume block, just because it's, 
It doesn't intimidate the lifter. It's not hard. You will always get it. I think if you take someone who's unfamiliar with RPE and they're really having a shit week, a single at eight could easily become a single at a nine and a half. I've seen that happen. Um, They're not just expecting that. And that, that can suck, you know, uh, be a little scary, um, you know, freak you out for the next time you do it. And yeah, but man, it's, it's, I've, I found it to be very, very helpful to have those um, moderately heavy uh, singles or doubles or triples uh, built into a plan, even when you're, when you're further away from a time where you would traditionally be expecting to do that. Um, So for example, I've set up mesocycles where uh, a volume day might be that three by eight, like I talked about, but we'll start it with a single at a six and the next mesocycle, we'll start it with a single at a seven and it won't be three by eight. It'll be three by six. And then the one closest to the competition might be a single at an eight or a nine and it's three by five or three by four. Um, so it's the same theme, but the overall focus of it being uh, a higher intensity and more specific to the competition changes and it becomes a lot more informative as time goes on and a lot more specific. So you can still take those same general concepts and blend them together to get kind of that, that nice effect where uh, unlike the traditional forms of periodization, all of a sudden you're going from tens to fives, you know, for, for three months at a time, like you alluded to and potentially losing uh, some aspect or detraining a bit of the adaptations you previously got. Could, could the heavy uh, single, especially in uh, the volume block, not to, go too much back to that be almost a proxy for if you're recovering from week to week so let's say someone did choose to start with four sets or even add sets across the week but you were able to keep at the same rpe or even add a little bit could that show oh i can potentially handle more volume even though we we just talked about we want to be very um uh conservative uh, with that to some degree, yes, but we also have data. It's, it depends on, on what, what, you're, what you're doing volume for, I guess, and I'll explain what the hell I mean. Um, we've got data to show that your, your recovery of maximal strength and your recovery of quote-unquote volume capacity or let's say muscular endurance um, are not exactly the same, uh, and your maximal strength will recover faster uh, than your ability to do a ton of volume. So if you do like a really highly damaging protocol, um, you induce a bunch of edema, a bunch of a bunch of muscle damage, and you're still in that recovery process, you might be able to get surprisingly close to previous strength levels if you're doing uh, low rep, uh, you know, high load efforts. But your ability to do say like your best three by fifteen will be noticeably degraded. So. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you're doing the volume for. If if it is all in service of inducing, uh, you know, maximum strength gains, then yeah, I could tell you a little something. But if if you're doing volume to see how much more volume you can do, um, then that single would be less indicative of that capacity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, Eric, I have a question, and I think this will kind of bridge the the volume with the strength. Have you ever looked at the answer to this might just be a flat out no. Uh, have you ever looked at CrossFit, namely like higher level CrossFit athletes, and have tried to like glean anything from how one would perhaps want to quote unquote game this based on the demands of the sport? Because one thing that's so challenging in applying this to CrossFit athletes 
outside of, of course, just generally over time wanting to improve their strength and their endurance, is that there are just, it's hard to classify uh, movements relative to bodybuilding, bodybuilding standards. Those, those muscle groups are changing, right? And it's also hard to predict events. But in terms of potential setups or considerations for someone who is, if not a crosser, at least maybe say like a concurrent athlete, have you thought about how any of this knowledge is something that they could benefit from and integrate together in this volume strength kind of intersection? To some degree, yes. And I have consulted with a couple of CrossFitters. Um, typically, it's not, ha unfortunately, hasn't been an ongoing relationship. It was like, hey, let's do a consultation and uh, we'll set up kind of a, a training structure. And then you go off to your to your merry CrossFitting. And I, I wish you the best. And I, I didn't get the follow up. So it's tough to know whether it, it was effective or not. But I have had the fortune of um, knowing some very high level CrossFit coaches and uh, some of the, the systems they've used. Um, I have a friend named Ian Houghton who presented uh, in Norway at the same time I did at a conference. I want to say it was either 2015 or 2016. And so I know CrossFit evolves quickly. So it's semi-old data, but still, I think, pretty, pretty important. And he did a uh, interviews with a bunch of uh, regional, regionally qualified athletes and, and their coaches uh, so these are pretty high-level CrossFitters, and um, found that about 60% of them were using a periodized model for training. Um, and he was basically saying, hey, the, the way that someone trains in a CrossFit class locally and the way someone trains who is trying to make it to the CrossFit games is probably should be pretty different. Um, and acknowledging that there are, you know, various different demands, but even though you can't predict the events, you can, you know, the energy systems and you know, the skills required broadly, that means your training should probably be periodized around those different disciplines. So having, uh, days focused on aerobic training, anaerobic training, strength, body weight work, uh, you know, strength, endurance, endurance, strength, and all these various different things, um, should probably be a little more separate and delineated earlier. And then they should probably only become more combined or look like a traditional quote unquote wad when you're actually getting close to a competition where that's what you're going to perhaps experience. So I think um, that makes things so much easier to figure out when you can put things into boxes, <laughs> you know, when you can say, right, so I need, I need to develop an aerobic engine. I need to get anaerobic capacity. I need to develop strength to this level and I need to be able to develop these gymnastic skills and then you can have each one of those be, uh, have, have blocks where they're more or less dominant, uh, days where they're the, the primary focus or not. Um, you know, you might have a block where it's primarily gymnastics and Olympic lifting and a little powerlifting, and then just enough to maintain your aerobic fitness. And you might have a block that's the flip of that. And I think, uh, that is, is from what I have heard and seen from talking to some of these high level CrossFitters and coaches that's what they're doing uh, at, at the highest levels, or at least the majority are doing. Um, and you know the saying, success leaves clues. Um, I think if you were to look back at the CrossFit Games, uh, you know, back when it started and people were training a lot more in that kind of standardized wad way of doing it, um, it's tough to say if this is the cause because there's also just a whole lot less people competing. 
um, but the performance uh, performances were at a much lower level than they are now. And I think that's probably largely due to the, the, the boom of participants in CrossFit, but I think it probably also has to do with uh, the methodology being improved and mm-hmm. implementing things like periodization. Yeah, the, the needs analysis just becomes, uh, you're working with a, a larger pool of, of variables, but that needs analysis still is, is or it's not still, it's actually of in, in increasing importance. Um, really cool. So um, is there anything, Eric, that you and 3DMJ are, are working on or have been thinking about that's perhaps in line with what we've discussed that is perhaps something that, I don't think up for debate is the right word, but something that you guys are, are maybe focusing attentions on so as to best address from a training standpoint relative to how you've done it a particular way in the past? Or have you found that, you know, through these uh, influencers that you've spoken about that until more comes out uh, to suggest otherwise that you've found a, a good little rhythm uh, with what the evidence says and, you know, what you've learned since 2009, which is quite some time, uh, you know, almost a, a decade worth of business and coaching uh, athlete experience to say that, you know, the systems in play are, are going to work for the majority of people. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's a funny thing. Like our, um, everything that I've described, I can say with confidence, it works for our athletes, you know. Um, how useful that is, though, it's well, it's really useful to us, <laughs> but it may or may not be useful to other people. Um, one thing that I've become acutely aware of and that I try to remind myself and the rest of 3DMJ is that the more we succeed in terms of being well-known, the less, in some ways, we can trust our own anecdotes uh, because someone might listen to our podcast for a couple years, uh, listen to this podcast, listen to others, read my books and become convinced that this system makes a lot of sense. That's the way I want to go. And my dream would be to work with 3DMJ. Um, And if that becomes the dominating experience or, or belief system of the athletes who come to work with us, there's a higher probability that it's going to succeed um, because they're either one, just getting the placebo effect and motivated and excited or two, um, the people who are the most likely to engage with our work like what we write and for it to make sense to them have had a similar experience in the past in the weight room uh, or share a similar psychological mindset, which I do think has a significant impact on the type of training you gravitate towards and succeed with. So I think as we are, are no longer just getting what a you know brick and mortar business would call quote unquote walk-ins people who just got a random rec- uh, you know uh, recommendation at the gym or who just stumbled upon us through a Google search or something like that. I think as we get more and more people and almost exclusively now people who know who we are when they're applying to work with us, I think there is a greater and greater chance of us just starting to drink our own Kool Aid. Like uh, man, what we do always works. People come, it works more, it works great. Where our, our anecdotes are the best, and I think. Um, I think we have to be aware that uh, there are people who use uh, different systems that get a lot of great results. So, um, yeah, I, that doesn't directly answer your question, but I think it's 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 something that is related to that uh, that that question, and that that's why I 
I'm always staying up with the latest research and why I love to sit down and talk with guys like Mike Isretel, talk with guys like Mike T, uh, Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdos, people who are doing it on their own with a slightly different or, or very different in some cases um, mentality or approach or um, not necessarily fundamentally different principles they operate from. Because that's the cool thing is all those people I mentioned, uh, we, we would nod our heads if, if given the same principle-based uh, ideas. But the, the systems in which we uh, try to implement those principle-based guidelines are different. And um, if they're able to achieve similar or higher levels of success than we are, then there might be something there to learn or at least to give us more options. And if you are a, a coach and you're struggling to find time, this is, is just a not, and this is not a, because you're on doing you a favor, uh, Eric, but it is a plug that is just so worth mentioning because it, if you're keeping up with the latest literature, despite your knowledge, so too should uh, you know any and all emerging coaches. Uh, and, and with what you guys do with mass, and if you're uh, wondering what that is, if you're coaching and you just don't have the time or you're maybe not educated and, and confident in your scientific literacy, then you can subscribe to Eric Mike Zerodos and Greg Knuckles' research review, where they synthesize recent literature and present it both in text and there's also video for you to digest on your own time. And it comes out each month. And, and really, that's just such an invaluable tool. Um, so, uh, Eric, thank you for that. And, and oh, to, my pleasure. Thank you for, for, for mentioning it. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really, um, really wonderful. And, you know, to, to kind of uh, wrap this up, though, you know, we've we enjoyed this discussion so much. And I know I'd love to have you back on to discuss more because there's, there's so much that I'd love to pick your brain about. And we, we didn't even really get too much into power. And we didn't, so, we yeah. didn't get too much into power. <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, I think, you know, uh, Alberto, who, who works for your company, was interviewed, he was on a podcast recently, and it was great. It kind of speaks to this whole, you know, longevity and patience process. The whole podcast was on his nutrition and on his off-season uh, mindset and, and, and uh, kind of breakdown. And he was getting so animated talking about it. And he kind of just, you know, like really good groove in the podcast. And at the end, he's like, it's funny because, you know, like I'll cut back down and maybe I'll have gained like a pound or two of muscle. <laughs> so I, uh, like the more competitive in, in not just bodybuilding, but you know, CrossFit and weightlifting, powerlifting, the more honesty that's shared around the advanced trainee, certainly advanced in training age, and creating realistic expectations for people who are new to the sport creates a compliant uh, and committed athlete who might be better understanding that there's not this conflict created between the coach's knowledge of what's realistic and the athlete's desires. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, Berto has, has been another person who's had a huge influence on me. And uh, I was very fortunate to, to found 3DMJ with, with him and the rest of the guys. But Berto has always had that, um, that transparency, which I've always really appreciated. And the uh, kind of the tying in of the, the emotional side of it uh, with, with kind of the, the sciencey side of it. And I think 100% correct that the, that's where problems often occur in a coaching relationship is when there is a mismatch of expectations uh, between, between the two. Um, and yeah, I think 
that's coming to terms with, with, with what you can expect out of your body, but still maintaining a high level of motivation and dedication is the whole ethos behind uh, 3d muscle journey. That's kind of embedded in our name, right? Uh, not only dedication, desire, discipline, kind of the, the ethos of a bodybuilder, uh, but also focusing on that process, enjoying the journey and um, not letting any kind of lessened expectation of what the outcome of that journey might be uh, pull away from the, the enjoyment of that experience and kind of letting it be what it's going to be, but still pushing yourself as hard as you can. So yeah, he's a, he's a good friend of mine and, um, and, and, and a really intuitively intelligent guy. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in, Eric. Thank you for your time. And perhaps guys, next time you're in the gym and you just have added, you know, two and a half kilos, five pounds to your exercise, or you just maybe add five pounds to an RPE eight, five pounds less at RPE eight the week prior, just take a moment to give yourself a pat on the back because it's certainly worth it. Uh, Eric, thanks so much. We ho hope you enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely did. Thank you guys for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure to get to know you both. Great. All right. Have a great rest of your day. You too.